Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Cass, we are very recently returned home from an adventure. Yes, we are quite literally recording this less than 24 hours after we both got back from our trip to the Lone Star State. We had actually just been in Dallas the last few days at the invitation of the Dallas Museum of Art. Yes, and we were very delighted to accept their invitation to do a live episode of Dressed in conjunction with their fabulous exhibition, Dior, From Paris to the World. And Cass, you actually saw this show when it was on view in Denver earlier this year, and curator Florence Mueller joined us to speak about it. So we had actually already covered this specific exhibition, and this gave us the opportunity to think on a grander scale in terms of what we're going to talk about in Dallas. And that we did. We thought it would actually be fun to highlight not only Dior's contributions to fashion of the 1940s and 50s, but also some of his amazing colleagues. So without further ado, Dressed Goes Live. Good evening, everyone. I'm Jesse Carrillo. I'm the manager of adult programs here at the DMA, and I'm so pleased to see you all here as we continue to celebrate this beautiful exhibition that we have, um, Dior from Paris to the World. I'm sure you've heard by now, um, but if you haven't, we extended the show to October 27th. So now you have two more months to take in all of the exquisite details that these objects have to offer. So tonight, we are proud to welcome April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary, hosts of the hit podcast, Dressed, for a live episode about the decade of fashion design that Christian Dior called the Golden Age. We'll find out what made this era in couture so iconic and who the key players were. Please join me in giving a very warm welcome to April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Hello, everyone. Hello. Okay. So first of all, we want to say thank you so much for coming out to join us tonight for this live recording of the podcast. And this is actually our very first live episode. So you're here for a special (laughs) evening. (laughs) And as uh, Jesse mentioned, I hope that you all have had a chance to see the Dior exhibition. It really, truly is magnificent. And I was going to say, if you haven't, that it's open until late September, but apparently that is now factually incorrect. So, um, but we are so excited to be part of this programming and want to thank Jesse and everyone else here at Dallas Museum of Art for having us. Yes, thank you, Jesse, and the Dallas Museum of Art and to this beautiful audience. It's so great to actually see your smiling faces for a change. (laughs) (laughs) We usually just sit in a dark room and talk to each other. So I I don't think that a year and a half ago when April and I launched Dressed that we in any way could have anticipated the response to the show or that we would have listeners from all over the world. And 
I suppose in some teeny tiny small sliver of a way that the podcast reach mirrors the way in which Christian Dior's own designs spread around the world. And Dior from Paris to the World, of course, explores the worldwide influence of one of the most revered and beloved designers and how his work really became a global phenomenon. It was actually Christian Dior himself who described this period immediately following World War II as the golden age of both fashion and culture. And it's a period that's perhaps unrivaled in its production, display, and consumption of glamour, elegance, and sophistication. And this was really adapted and adopted by women across the economic spectrum and instituted by a legion of celebrated and influential designers led by Dior himself. And Dior was certainly at the heart of the artistic flowering of the haute couture in the post-war era with his quote-unquote flower women, but he was far from alone. Numerous other couturiers, fashion makers, creators, clientele, models, photographers, and other influencers helped to shape the golden age of haute couture beyond Dior. And while we of course, are certainly going to address Dior's contribution because it is impossible to discuss this era without him. We also endeavor to highlight the other men and women in front of and behind the scenes that were integral to the creation of this period of supreme beauty and artifice. And this is a really special moment because rarely in fashion history can we look back on a singular moment in time, one event that changed the course of fashion history so significantly that we're still talking about this 60 years later. And it's really only fitting that our discussion of the golden age of haute couture start with the sensational debut collection of a then relatively unknown Christian Dior, which occurred on February 12th, 1947. But as the Parisian weekly magazine L'Express put it quite well, Dior was unknown on the 12th of February, 1947, and famous on the 13th. Yes, he was. Dior rocketed to international stardom in the aftermath of his collection that was heralded in the press as a revelation. His highly structured and extravagant silhouettes, which were maintained with interior corsetry, padding, and yards and yards of fabric, stood in such stark contrast to the rationed war-era fashions that Harper's Bazaar editor-in-chief Carmel Snow dubbed his collection The New Look. Wrote Vogue shortly after the debut, these are the moments when fashion changes fundamentally, and boy, were they right. Dior's new look would dominate fashion for the next 10-plus years. And the two main inspirations for Dior's designs were the gentle loops of a figure eight and also the corolle, which is a French term that's uh, used to reference the twirling placement of petals around a flower. And of this vision for this debut collection, Dior wrote, I design clothes for flower-like women with rounded shoulders, full feminine busts, hand-spanned waists above enormous spreading skirts. And while the surprising silhouettes of this new collection made Dior famous, it would actually be the skirts themselves that made him infamous. Because not only did he lower hemlines, approximately six inches per day, um, the volume of his creations required copious amounts of fabric. And let's just talk about this for a minute because fashion historian Claire Wilcox has approximated that just a simple woolen day dress from this collection required 15 yards of fabric, whereas a short evening gown may call for 25 yards. That's 75 feet. 
a fabric in one garment. <laughs> yeah, and that's a short gown, not an evening gown. Yeah, yeah. for our listeners out there on the metric system, that's nearly 23 meters. And I mean, I'm just trying to imagine what it would have been for one of the floor-length evening gowns. Yeah. It's incredible. And in light of the fact that many forms of rationing were still in effect in France at this time, this return to conspicuous consumption did not sit well with many. No. And it's it's really understand easy to understand why um, people were a little upset about this collection because two and a half years following France's liberation from Nazi occupation, the city of Paris was really still trying to get back on her feet. She was still struggling to get back on her feet. Just, just to kind of like give you a measure of what we're talking about, at this time when Dior's New Look collection debuted, a box of strawberries in Paris cost what would now be today $16. And if you would like to purchase a single bunch of asparagus, that was going to set you back about $30. I like asparagus, but not that much. I know. <laughs> Not that much. Um, so, so restaurants found themselves sometimes in a little bit of a predicament, and some of them actually turned to the black market. And this black market had sprung up in response to the systemic rationing that had been put in place under the Germans. And it wasn't only food that was rationed. Uh, likewise, leather, wool, and silk were rationed during the war. And each French citizen was issued a set of coupons, which kept a stranglehold on each individual's annual clothing consumption. And the amount that was actually allowed was usually just at or even sometimes below subsistence level. So needless to say, not everyone was pleased with Dior's new look collection, which was perceived by many as flaunting extravagance in the face of deprivation. An image published in Paris March of market women ripping the clothes off of a Dior model in the streets of Paris may have been a publicity stunt arranged by the house itself, but it seems as if it actually was inspired by real events that happened days earlier, and this is when enraged saleswomen from the Four Seasons department store ambushed a photo shoot taking place in the streets of Montmartre and did just that. They attacked the model. So these controversies surrounding Dior's debut 1947 collection, they have all the gravitas of a Hollywood drama, and that drama would be complete with an arc villain himself, which would be Dior, because in the United States, Dior was actually met by resistance, quite literally. In Chicago, women organized the Little Below the Knee Club and protested his arrival in their city, greeting him with placards that you can see behind me, reading, Mr. Dior, we abhor dresses to the floor. And also, women joined the fight for freedom in the manner of dress. And freedom is really the operative word here, April, because Dior's highly structured silhouettes had really not been evidenced in women's fashion since the early 1900s. So fashion modernized during World War I and continued to offer women practical, comfortable, corset, optional, and free alternatives into the 30s and 40s. French fashion designers had a profound influence on consumer tastes around the world, and the adoption of Dior's new look, well, it threatened to set women's progress back almost half a century. And that being said, April, I had the pleasure of touring the exhibition with the curator, Florence Mueller, in Denver mm -hmm. last year, and she informed me that these protesting women in Chicago were not just disgruntled American consumers, but disgruntled American fashion designers. Right. And not only were they protesting Dior's extravagant silhouettes, 
But the general absolutism of his and other French designers' influence on the fashion industry as a whole. And French couturiers had been the world's leading tastemakers and trendsetters in all things fashion, except for during the period of World War II. And it was during this period that American designers were finally allowed to come into their own, to develop their own design voice. So Dior's monumental success with the new look really threatened to upend the American progress. And these protests were not exclusive to Chicago. We also see them in California, Kentucky, and as far away as Georgia. Now, conversely, the progress of American fashion designers during the war posed a huge threat to the revival of the French fashion industry in the war's wake. So the industry had been one of the pillars of the nation's economy for centuries. It has been estimated that at any time, anywhere between one-third to one-fourth of France's entire economy was in one way or another dependent on the fashion trade. So not only the couture and couture exports, but also the other industries that supplied them. So we're talking textile manufacturers, the dyeing trades, button makers, embroiderers, plumeries, milliners, flower and ribbon makers, the list (laughs) goes on and on and on. So much so that in September of 1944, Time magazine estimated that during the war, a million makers in France were dependent on the continuance of couture in order to survive the occupation. So while select couture houses did remain open during the war, the French fashion industry had basically suffered a huge setback, and it was really imperative for them to regain their footing as the world's leader of fashion, and Dior's sensational 1947 debut was exactly what the Paris couture needed. And regain their glory, they did. By 1948, as Life magazine reported, the Little Below the Knee Club, a nationwide organization of some 300,000 embattled women, succumbed to the overwhelming pressure of events and admitted its valiant fight to preserve America from the new look has ended in defeat. Dior had ushered in a new era of fashion, a period that to this day remains unrivaled in its display of supreme artifice, glamour, and sophistication. Yes, this is true, Cass, but as we both know, the contributions of one designer does not necessarily a golden age make. And the blossoming of the golden age of couture was made possible due to the combined contributions of innumerable men and women throughout the 1940s and the 1950s. And this included a pantheon of influential designers that had their own, you know, individual take, individual flair and talents. And as a few of these designers that we endeavor to share with you tonight, some of them may already be familiar with you. Um, but others may not. And we just want to state up front, this is in no way a comprehensive list, and it was actually rather difficult for Really, us really hard. To narrow <laughs> some things down as to who we're going to talk about. So without further ado, the couturiers. While it is simple to credit Dior with inventing the new look, in reality, it was a silhouette that he and other designers had been experimenting with prior to 1947. And this included the designer that Dior himself referred to as the master of us all, Cristobal Balenciaga. If there ever to be a heavyweight match between designers of this era, it would be between these two, Dior and Balenciaga. Not that they were adversaries in any way, shape, or form. Dior clearly revered Balenciaga, as did nearly every single one of his contemporaries. 
Balenciaga was born in the Basque Resort region of Spain in 1895 to a seamstress mother and a seafaring father, and he honed his skills from a young age as a tailor's apprentice before opening his own couture business in his late 20s. He met with wild success on the Basque coast where the fashionable, the beautiful, and the royal all met to play, and it would only be the rise of fascism in his native Spain that would force him to relocate to Paris in 1937, where he was basically received with immediate acclaim. And his precision, his innovations in construction techniques and irreproachable chic made him a favorite of not only his fellow fashion designers, but also the most soigné women in the world. And the wealthiest, most soigné women in the world, because Balenciaga's prices were some of the highest in Paris. His experimentations with silhouette remain legendary, and in many ways they stand in direct opposition to Dior. In 1945, it was Balenciaga, not Dior's designs, that were being heralded as the new look by Vogue. And in fact, many designers of this year were offering alternatives to the heavily padded shoulders and slim skirt that dominated the era. And Balenciaga's own experimentations with this silhouette can be glimpsed in these images from 45 and 46, respectively. But as we know, it was Dior who would fully realize these silhouettes, building his garments onto an internal armature of corsets, boning, petticoats, and wire. Conversely, Balenciaga would produce voluminous creations that traveled away from the wearer's body. His balloon jackets and skirts, cocoon coats, and sack dresses of this period stand in testimony to his incredible skill as a sculptor of fabric. Fashion editor Carmel Snow wrote in 1955, The Paris collections have great charm, but the power of creating remains in the hands of the two leaders of fashion, Balenciaga and Dior, with their inexhaustible capacities for invention. And she goes on to say, For Balenciaga, the future is never a matter of hazardous conjecture. Since he designs two seasons before everyone else, Fashion history starts all over again with the present Balenciaga collection. And Balenciaga really carried the spirit of innovation all the way into the 1960s. Um, Many of his creations from the final years of his career are really considered fashion masterpieces. And after nearly 50 years in fashion, Cristobal Balenciaga retired in 1968. Much like Balenciaga, our next designer was also born into a family engaged in the fashion trades. However, both of Pierre Balmain's parents were industry professionals. His father worked as a textile merchant while his mother operated a boutique. And he dreamed of following in their fashionable footsteps as a dressmaker and got his start working at Edward Molyneux in 1934 before serving three years in the French Air Force during World War II. Upon his return to fashion, Balmain worked alongside Christian Dior as a staff designer for the house of Lucien Lelong. And Balmain has been called one of the supreme practitioners of the new look. And surely these two junior designers, Dior and Balmain, consciously or unconsciously influenced um, each other during their time working together. Said Dior of their relationship, and I love this quote, it's so fabulous, there is no example in the history of dressmaking of a more complete understanding between two designers. So they were basically BFF. Yeah, Yeah, they loved each other very much. (laughs) 
Um, and fashion historian Alexander Palmer has noted um, early roots of the new look in many of the designs that Dior created during his time at Lalong. So it basically goes without saying that working side by side with Dior, Balmain would have been intimately familiar with what his colleague was up to. And interestingly enough, it would be Balmain who would set out on his own first, establishing his couture house in 1945. Success found him quickly, and like Dior, he courted the American market and was a favorite of Hollywood actresses, including Marlene Dietrich, Catherine Hepburn, and Vivian Lee. And Pierre Balmain remained at the head of his house for nearly 40 years until his death in 1982. Jacques Fath. Reputation as the impish prince of Paris couture makes perfect sense given his background as both an actor and, get this, a stockbroker. And at the age of 25, he opened his own couture house entirely on his own dime, which is basically unheard of at this time. He showed his first collection in 1937. And in 1939, he would marry the breathtaking Genevieve Boucher de la Bourriere, who served as not only his greatest model and muse, but she was an integral part of the business um, because she was also his business manager. And here we see a picture of her in 1949. Her and her husband Jacques were on tour in America. And this is just a small fraction of the clothes that she brought with her. And this partnership served them both exceedingly well, but it was probably a marriage convenience because it's widely held that he was gay and she a lesbian. Yeah. The couple were great movers and shakers in the Paris social scene in the post-World War II era, and they were renowned for throwing magnificent parties for this really young, hip international set, which comprised the large portion of their clientele throughout the 1940s and the 1950s. Fat's work throughout the Golden Age was notable for its sex appeal. His gowns really emphasized the female bosom with bodices that molded to the figure like a glove, such as these dresses featured here captured by Gordon Parks for Life magazine. And collectively, they're priced at only $5,100. Of course, today that's (laughs) $48,000. But as Lawrence Marcus of Dallas's own Neiman Marcus noted, Fat's gowns were also distinguished by their quote-unquote wearable glam a glamour made particularly accessible to the American market thanks to Fat's ready-to-wear line produced in the country twice a year. And Fat was really at the apex of his career when he tragically died of leukemia in 1954 at the age of just 42 years old. That's very sad. I would have loved to have seen what he did later on in life. Measuring in at six foot six... Our next couturier, who also happened to be Fat's best-known protege, perhaps needs little introduction to most of you. Hubert James Taffin de Givenchy was born in Beauvais, France in 1927. And Givenchy's career began at the age of 17 with a job at Jacques Fat, followed by about a six-month stint at Lucien Lalonde, where both Dior and Balmain had also worked. And following that, he goes on to work for Elsa Scaparelli for four years, designing for her ready-to-wear boutique. And it is said that it broke her heart when he left in 1951 to set up his own couture shop. And after a chance meeting at a dinner party in 1952, Givenchy finally had the opportunity to meet someone he had long idolized, Cristobal Balenciaga, who would serve as a mentor to the young designer for the rest of his life. Balenciaga would prove to be an incredibly nurturing teacher, 
Both men really shared a love of volume, shape, simplicity. Both held matters of construction and reverent regard. Both felt that the fabric dictated the final form. And when you compare their bodies of work, you can really see the influence that Balenciaga had over the young Couture's work. So they really shared a sense of discipline. And we certainly cannot mention the name Givenchy without acknowledging his most famous client and muse, who is, of course, Audrey Audrey Hepburn. Hepburn. Yes. He dressed Audrey off and on the camera for decades, starting with some of the most iconic looks in the 1954 film Sabrina. Which is a little bit controversial because the costume design for the film Sabrina is officially credited to Edith Head, but that's a different story for a different time. (laughs) I mean, what would Hollywood be without a little drama? Exactly. (laughs) Um, I also think that this relationship between Givenchy and Hepburn, uh, we can find the beginnings of what we now call brand ambassadorships today, where a celebrity is aligned with a particular brand, which I think is kind of interesting to bring those things into contemporary terms. Absolutely. And Givenchy sat at the helm of his house until his retirement in 1995. And the last two decades of his life were spent living peacefully at one of his many country estates. And he actually did not die um, until March of last year, so at the age of 91. Yes. And it may have occurred to some of you in the audience or at home listening that so far we have only been discussing male designers. Yes, we know. (laughs) We know. (laughs) It was actually a rather interesting phenomenon during the 40s and 50s that male designers had claimed the reins of fashion from the hands of women couturiers such as Gabrielle Coco Chanel, Jeanne Lanvin, Elsa Schiaparelli, and Madeleine Vianney, who had really ruled on high in the 20s and 30s. And while there were certainly many great women couturiers working in Paris during the 40s and 50s, including Carven, Mad Carpentier, and Nina Ricci, it's hard to dispute the fact that Madame Grey was the most influential and innovative of them all. Called the Sphinx of Fashion for her quixotic name changes and legendary reclusion, Gray was as much of a sculptress as she was a fashion designer. Born Germaine Emily Krebs in Paris in 1903, Gray studied dance and, no surprise here, sculpture in her youth. At the age of 30, she just decided to try her hand at dressmaking as part of a three-month internship at the Couture House Premier, and it was at this time that the rarefied genius of one of the most brilliant couturiers of the 20th century was suddenly revealed. And it was also around this same time that she changed her name to Alix and began working for the couturier Julie Barton. And for a period, Gray designed under the name Alix Barton. After her 1937 marriage, however, she changed her last name to Gray, which was an anagram of her painter husband's first name, Sergei. And as one fashion journalist, American fashion journalist, wrote in 1956, Madame Grey is a demon for work. She is probably the only dressmaker of note who conceives all of her models herself and actually fashions them with her own hands. Every dress in her collection is built upon a mannequin, Madame's fingers flashing in with the pins like the beak of a busy bird. And Grey has said of her own work, I feel like what I'm doing is living sculpture. 
Gray also had an abiding interest in geometry and her pattern making and created, as scholar Patricia Mears has noted, puffed, molded, and three-dimensionally shaped elements that billowed and fell away from the body. And while Madame Gray certainly sculpted dresses within the new look silhouette of the 50s, she is best known for her astounding skill with pleats. Her biased, draped Grecian gowns became a staple of her oeuvre early on and remained into, get this everyone, into the 1980s. So she had this incredibly long and prolific career. Yeah, she's legendary for sure. And our listeners may have also noticed so far that we have only been speaking about Parisian designers, and that is because while haute couture might translate to elite sewing or high sewing, it is also an official designation given to distinguished members of France's governing body of the couture industries, the Chambre Syndicale de la Couture Parisienne. As fashion historian Marjorie Dunton has succinctly summed it up, the Chambre Syndicale is half union and half guild a judicial and a legislative body intended to represent, advise, and defend its members. It copes with style piracy, foreign relations, buyers, and the press. And that's not all. The syndicale dictated the dates when your collections could be shown, the number of designs required to be shown each season, and among other stipulations, the number of times a client was to be measured and fitted. So one of the distinguishing factors of haute couture from ready-to-wear is that garments are made to order after they are sold, employing the highest levels and standards of craftsmanship in the production of these hand-finished garments. The official name of the organization may have seen slightly variations throughout the years, but the function of the Chambre Syndicale remains essentially the same today as it did when it was founded more than 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. And while the Chambre Syndicale oversees the French fashion industry and also haute couture, the golden age of the 1940s and 50s also saw similar organizations take shape in London with the Incorporated Society of London Fashion Designers in Spain as the Corruptiva de Alta Costura. And I did not know this until we started working on this episode, even as far away as Canada, because in Canada in 1954, the Association of Canadian Couturiers was established. So despite lacking this official designation of haute couturier because they had to be French in order to have that designation. There were nevertheless many great talents working abroad outside of France who made their own very important contributions to this period. In London, Norman Hartnell was certainly the most successful, no doubt in part due to his connections with the royal family. Born in 1901, Hartnell began his career selling his fashion sketches to established houses in London. He apprenticed under a court dressmaker for several years before setting up his own shop in 1923 where he quickly made a name for himself designing for debutantes, society galas, and fancy dress balls. And in 1935, no big deal, he was tapped to begin designing for the (laughs) royal family. And in 1947, was selected for perhaps the greatest honor any British designer could hope for. He designed Princess Elizabeth's wedding dress for her nuptials to Prince Philip of Greece and Denmark. And Hartnell would also design Elizabeth's robes for her coronation in 1953. Designing within this kind of new look silhouette or the new look oeuvre, Hartnell put his own stamp on the era by designing within a certain dreamy English romanticism. 
And additionally, his work has been cited for his use of tool, which wasn't particularly fashionable at the time. It was really Hartnell that made it so. And it has also been said, and this is such a charming story as well, that when he was designing for the queen, he would frequently study Franz Winterhalter's 19th century portraits of her ancestors in order to gain inspiration. And the final couturier we will profile was instrumental in proffering his own brand of glamour and elegance during our golden age and beyond, and on both sides of the Atlantic. So born Maine Rousseau Bacher in Chicago in 1891, he was far from the only designer we have mentioned this evening to serve in World War II. Dior, Balmain, and Fott were all enlisted for periods of times, but Bacher or perhaps we'll call him the French version Beauchet, That's as, way he, easier. as he became known. Um, he may have been the only spy. Yeah, right? <laughs> spy turned couturier. Uh, during World War II, he enlisted with the U.S. Army Intelligence Corp. And when demobilized, he returned in France to continue the operatic vocal training he had started before the war. But he, uh, after failing a pivotal audition, uh, Boucher set his sights on fashion journalism, of all things. A job with Harper's Bazaar in Paris eventually paved the way for a position in 1923 at French Vogue, where he was appointed editor-in-chief just four years later. Good for you, Mambochet, moving up those ranks. But uh, in 1929, he actually resigned from this position as, from, as the head of the magazine to set up shop as a couturier. And not just any couturier, but of course an haut couturier. And this is especially significant because Mambochet is just one of a handful of Americans ever inducted into this ultra-exclusive chambre syndicale. And I, you know, you have to remark, he was an extremely well-connected couturier from the very beginning, you know, because clearly Cass, as the editor of French Vogue, he basically knew everybody. Yes, he did. The social set flocked to the min newly minted house of Montboucher, a combination of his first and last name with, of course, the French pronunciation. Montbacher doesn't have the same ring. Doesn't have the same cachet. <laughs> uh, the, the most famous of his early clients being Wallace Simpson, the Duchess of Windsor. He designed her now iconic blue wedding dress, which was a unique shade of pale blue chosen to match her blue eyes. And when she married King Edward III in 1937, or we should say the former King Edward III, because he abdicated the throne to marry his American bride. Right. It was like the scandal of the decade, basically. <laughs> and um, with the outbreak of hostilities in Europe in 1939, Mabochet uprooted his Paris operations and relocated to New York, where he was noted during this golden age for his impeccable craftsmanship and this sort of restrained sense of elegance. Quote, no one ever whistles at a Manboche dress, choked Life magazine in 1955. And basically they were noting that while Manboche's clothes lacked a certain sex appeal, the designer made up for it with this irreproachable chic expense and success. And Manboche designed for the American social set and his devotees included fashion editor Diana Vreeland, socialite and model CZ Guest, and standard oil heiress and fashion aficionado Millicent Rogers. Alas, one only has to open any fashion magazine from this era to realize that we've only touched on a few of the many, many very important fashion designers operating during the Golden Age, all of whom were incredibly instrumental in reviving the fashion industry around the world in the aftermath of World War II and responsible for restoring 
pre-war elegance to a world long depleted of such extravagance and luxury. But the designer was only one part of an operation whose success was contingent on the skill and expertise of a whole bevy of men and women operating behind the scenes. And this was especially true in 1950s France, where the world's leading fashion designers were only as good as their team. Let's talk creators. Yes, for sure. And, you know, it may very well be the Haute Couturier's name that graces the sign above the Couture House's entrance and the labels that are lovingly hand-stitched into each and every garment. But creating a fashion of couture caliber is far from a singular effort. It can take hundreds, if not thousands of hours to create a single couture garment. And in the process, it may be touched by dozens of pairs of hands. Jeanette Spanier, the directrice at the House of Balmain, once described her job as a strange mixture of theater and commerce, showmanship and business. No theatrical production is ever successful without a supporting cast, and a maison de couture is absolutely no different. The roles of the cast of supporting characters were and continue to be very clearly defined. They all work together as a symphony to ultimately create sartorial works of art. Under the direction of the head couturier are generally two separate ateliers in a couture house or workshops. The first one is known as fleur, where soft dressmaking techniques such as draping are employed. And the second is tailleur, where the made-to-measure tailoring is done. And each of these studios have a premier de tailleur or, or head of the studio who's in charge, and they oversee the work of the seamstresses and the technicians who work underneath them. And there's this very established hierarchy of learning and skill that governs one progress through these ranks. And as an arpet, apprentices learn finishing skills. They also observe workroom practices. And during the 1940s and 50s, these arpets, these positions were paid, but they were usually filled by teens as apprenticeships. And like I said, they were paid, but the pay was extremely minimal because in the 40s and 50s, it averaged about $1.57 a week, um, which is incredibly low. That basically translates to $60 a month, right? Thanks. So Yeah, these, these were basically considered educational opportunities. It was, it, was, it was an apprenticeship to try on the job to see if it was going to be a good fit. I see what you did there. I did it. <laughs> I, did a, I did a fashion pun. In two or three years, an pet could move up to become a deuxième man, a second hand whose work would be evaluated regularly with the hopes of eventually becoming a premier man or a first hand. It was only after reaching this highest of designations, which if you succeeded at all could take 10 years, that then and only then would you be allowed to develop models working in tandem with the couturier of the house. So the position of Premier Mon came with an incredible amount of responsibility and trust. And the fact of the matter is, Cass, as you already know, that many of Haute Couture's top designers did not know how to sew a couture garment from start to finish. They really acted as creative directors for the house, and it would be their sketches and or instructions transmitted to the Premier Mon, and then in turn, their team of artisans who were tasked with developing a concept into a mock-up of a garment that was made in muslin. And from there, the couturier would indicate adjustments, tweaks before deciding if the style would ultimately make it into that season's collection. And this, this process was especially interesting at the House of Dior because it has been written that he would initially begin with, get this, 600 mock-ups in muslin per season. 
And this would then be reduced to anywhere between 230 or 250 of the best designs. And only then would they actually be made to measure for the mannequin. And when I say mannequin, I don't mean like a store mannequin. We use that term for the living, breathing woman who is who is modeling the clothes in the fashion show. We use the term model for the actual specific garment. So only only then would they be made to measure for the mannequins in you know the most luxurious silks and velvets, tweeds, etc. Which actually you bring up another fascinating aspect of the couture industry, and that is the textiles, the fabric. Many a couture then and now will wholeheartedly state that their designs take direction from textiles, that the need to let the fabric dictate the form as imperative. So you have firms such as Colcombe, Bianchini, Ferrier, and Ducharme, who would visit the couture houses well in advance of designers beginning work on a new collection to present their fabric really as sources of inspiration. And Dior actually wrote about this in his autobiography. He says, two months before I've even roughed out my first sketch for the new collection, I have to make my preliminary selection. For that is when they arrive to see me. The silk merchants, the wool merchants, the lace makers, men of consequence imbued with the strong traditions who come from all over the world, bringing with them the wealth of the low countries and the richness of the Orient. It is like receiving an embassy. The symbiotic relationship between couturier and textile manufacturer could probably be an entire episode in its it own could. right. It's, it's really interesting. <laughs> I mean, in many ways, the designers and these textile mills were business partners, not only in simple one-off transactions, but oftentimes designers would approach textile companies to develop a custom textile or texture or color that was proprietary to their house. And this is but one of the reasons that fashion magazines up until the 70s regularly listed the name of the textile manufacturer alongside the designer in the credits for editorial spreads. And textiles purveyors were not the only metier or craftsmen who shopped the selections of their wares in advance. So also did couture embroiderers, of which during the, in the 1950s there were approximately a dozen in operation in Paris. The two major houses of this era were Lesage and Vermont, and they produced anywhere from 180 to 300 samples per season. And these would then be sent out to the couture houses approximately one month before a new collection was designed. And they were really meant to inspire and entice a couture house to enlist the embroiderer's services as a contractor for the initial sample garment, and then, of course, as well for any subsequent orders that were placed after that. And this also worked similarly with other couture suppliers, not, not just embroiderers, such as Maison La Marais, um, whose specialty was, and still remains today, couture feather work. The sample models for a couture collection could take up to 100,000 hours to create. I mean, if, you, if you're starting with 600 muslins, <laughs> that makes sense. These countless hours of the creators were for naught if this collection did not sell. So twice a year, the international fashion press and representatives from department stores and manufacturers descended on Paris to learn the future of fashion. But it was actually a future that they themselves were responsible for determining. The importance of the fashion buyer and the fashion press and the dissemination of fashion cannot be overstated enough. Yeah, and, and we were talking about this earlier, 
podcast, if you would have asked me before I started studying fashion history as a grad student, I probably would have told you that couture meant that um, the garment was one of a kind. It was the only one to exist in the world and that it was made to measure for the individual client, which that part's true. But the rest of it, boy, I would have been completely wrong. Um, and the business of couture itself is really, in this era, is completely fascinating. Yeah, I, it's a very popular conception that private clients were the bread and butter for the couture industry at this time and something the fashion designers wanted you to believe. But alas, this is simply not the case. Only after presentations to the fashion press and North American and European buyers and manufacturers would couture collections be shown to private clients. And this actually happened one month after the press had first been given access. And, and that's not necessarily because the individual client did not matter, But more important than the private client who came to the Fame Maisons to buy their couture wardrobes were the international clientele who never even made it to France. And this is because a significant portion of the income for top couture houses came from department stores who were licensing the rights to copy the couture designs. So we're talking about department stores like Bergdorf Goodman, Neiman Marcus, and what they were doing is they were officially licensing patterns and sometimes even toiles, which are those mock-ups and muslins that we were referring to earlier, or sometimes they were even buying completely finished couture garments for the purposes of reproduction. And this whole system was entirely done with the sanction and blessing of the couture houses in exchange for money, of course, right? (laughs) While the buyers might have literally brought oat fashion to the international market, it was the fashion press that made it covetable to the masses. This is, of course, the pre-Instagram era and integral to the institutionalization of the new look across the economic spectrum were fashion magazines. Two of the most important of the golden age were, of course, American Vogue and Harper's Bazaar, helmed by Edna Woolman Chase and Carmel Snow, respectively. And the fashion editors that Cash just mentioned and, and others can really be viewed as gatekeepers. They were so important in curating what the public saw at large and experienced in terms of fashion during this period. And under the direction of visionary fashion editor Sally Kirkland, Life magazine covered the latest fashions, but they also did this really cool thing where they offered behind-the-scenes exposés that could not be found anywhere else. And in 1951, for instance, they followed Vogue fashion editor Bettina Ballard around for that season's fall-winter collections, and they write that she sat through 14 collections, looked at 2,000 designs, and from memory and sketch notes, chose the 122 models which appear in Vogue's March issue. And we can see an example of that fashion shoot right here behind me, and that is Bettina um, working on set as well. And yet another really charming story, she was borrowing the sample garments from the couture houses to do the editorial photography. And it is, it's been said that to transport some of these ginormous ball gowns to the studio to be photographed, she actually had to hire individual limousines for each dress. So basically a limousine would pull up to the studio with a dress in it and no one else. <laughs> Fashion Magazine's highly curated selection of up-to-date Parisian styles was essential to disseminating the covetable fashion and beauty trends to their audience. 
but so too were the high fashion models seen throughout their pages. Some of the most iconic images in fashion history are from the 1950s, when photographers such as Richard Avedon and Irving Penn captured models in moments of static sophistication. Dressed in haute couture, models such as Davima, Lisa Fonsa Greaves, Dorian Lee, Susie Parker, and Mary Jane Russell, just to name a few, embodied and sold the era's aristocratic elegance to an entire generation of women across the economic spectrum. And I'm really glad you brought that up, Cass, about the economic spectrum because while haute couture fashion itself remained the domain of the elite and uber-wealthy, these designs were actually adapted at all different price points. And here we see a Dior um, dress called Margrave, and then the progression as it was copied by three different price points. And um, the prices that are in red up there are adjusted for inflation today. And these knockoffs of the couture designs hit the ready-to-market in record time, usually just within three months after the couture collections debuted. And Christian Dior actually spoke specifically about this. He acknowledged the exclusivity of his and other couturiers' work, but he also told a reporter in 1955, he said, quote, "'Nothing makes me happier than seeing a fashion become hugely popular. Fashion is for women the world over.'" And indeed, the influence of the haute couture spread beyond its insular world to pervade and define an entire era that would end almost as quickly as it began. And we chose to end our presentation tonight in 1957, just 10 years after Dior's meteoric rise to success and his sustained reign as the king of Parisian fashion, because in 1957 is when Dior himself died suddenly at just 52 years of age of a heart attack. And with him ended the golden age of fashion. And while haute couture would continue heartbroken by Dior's death, things were starting to change as evidenced by Dior's very own successor, the very young 21-year-old Yves Saint Laurent, whose debut collection for the House of Dior immediately ch challenged the dominance of Dior's new look with A-line trapeze dresses that moved away from the body. Only a few short years later, Eves was let go from the company after his controversial beatnet collection in which he introduced a high fashion leather jacket, which for those of you who have seen the exhibition is on display. And, you know, this jacket was inspired by youth street style. And if the 50s was for the sophisticated elite, the 60s were for the young. Eves was on the pulse of an era in which youth style reigned supreme. And an era during which a new generation of young ready-to-wear designers rose to challenge the pervasive influence of the haute couture. And said the French ready-to-wear designer Emmanuel Kahn of a Balenciaga design, it doesn't make a woman alive and pretty. It makes her look wealthy. And that, to me, is completely obsolete. The couture <laughs> is dead. The era changed so dramatically that the refined elegance of the Dior golden age and everything it represented was suddenly passé. Yeah, so passe that uh, the couture's even the most illustrious clientele no longer really wanted to spend the time for all these days and days of fitting, especially after couturiers began to offer high-end ready-to-wear. And it wasn't long before that's practically all they offered. 
Today, the haute couture industry is a fraction of the size that it was in its heyday during the golden age, and its existence is really sustained by the combined efforts of companies such as Chanel and Christian Dior, who keep the art forms inherent to its production alive. Um, but even today, it's it's a hard and staggeringly expensive sell in a world in which high-end ready-to-wear is really now the industry standard. And, you know, people the world over have also been convinced of the virtues of fast and disposable fashion. And it is in this way that the golden age of haute couture receives its designation because it was really the last glimmering, glamorous age of a now lost era. Between the years of 1947 and 1957, haute couture reigned supreme, an era of elegance, an era of extravagance and luxury that has never again been rivaled, but something we can all still very much celebrate and appreciate to this day. Thank you. Yes. So thank you to our dress listeners and our in-person dressed audience. That does it for us this evening. But may you all revel in the golden age of haute couture next time you get dressed. (laughs) This was such a fun experience, Cass. It was. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't entirely without its hiccups. This is the first time, obviously, that we had done a live episode. You know, (laughs) there was one point in the PowerPoint presentation where I accidentally hit the button to go back instead of forward and showed the wrong slide. Oops. (laughs) There was a lot going on in that moment in terms of like speaking and running the PowerPoint and hundreds of people being there. Yeah, we're not actually used to having anybody else in the room with us. So (laughs) I think our listeners may not realize that when we record the show, you all hear twice a week. Sometimes we even, you know, take a break for water or do a second take, which you don't hear in the edit. So you can't really do that when you're front and center mid stage. So here is to our first, hopefully of many live episodes in the future. Yes, we would love, love, love to do more. And especially because we got to meet so many of our listeners at the event. And and this actually may have been the best part. I personally would like to give an extra special shout out to our listener, Zachary, who came decked out in his dressed t-shirt. Zach, that was so cool. You totally made my day. I know. That was so very cool. And then I would like to give a special shout out to Nicole, who brought our book, Fashion and the Art of Pochois, for us to sign. That was really, really cool. And we even got some in-person fashion history mystery requests, which was really fun. Lindsay, who I believe is in the Air Force, requested an episode on the history of uniforms. And it was just, you know, it was just really cool to see our listeners in person and to meet so many of you. It was a very, very special experience. So thank you all for coming. And And also a huge thank you to the Dallas Museum of Art for having us. Seconded 100%. For those of you who are in or near NYC, we will actually be speaking at Bard Graduate Center on Thursday, September 19th. And I do think that tickets are available now, so come say hi. But if you're far away and you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dresspodcast at iheartmedia.com. Or you can also message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. And you can also follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. And if you'd like some dressed merch like Zach's, you can find it at tpublic.com forward slash dressed. That's T-E-E public.com forward slash dressed. And our dressed June 2020 group trip to Paris actually sold out in just four days. So we are actually gauging interest to see if perhaps we might add another week on to the trips. 
So if you're still interested, please head over to likemindstravel.com and submit your contact info and we will keep you posted. Last, but certainly never, ever least, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. Catch you soon. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.